All right. We're going to tiptoe our way back into beginning again the leaven of liturgy. We're on session 12 now. After the Christmas break, I thought that it was particularly uh, apropos that before the Christmas season, we were studying uh, the first half of the canon, which is on page 80 and 81 of the Book of Common Prayer, because we were talking about the manner in which Christ comes to be sacramentally present amongst us, his advent in that sense. And now that we're in the season of Epiphany, we're going to finish the portion of the canon, which has been given a few different names. Uh, It's the final paragraph of the canon, which is on page 81, beginning with, And we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness. Because this is the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles and an opportunity for the Gentiles to make their own offering. Think of the wise men coming and making their offering. This is really an oblation of ourselves, our souls, and our bodies during this portion of the liturgy. And so perhaps providentially, We've come to this portion here at the first Sunday in Epiphany of 2023. But before we start the course, we shall pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right, so we are going to begin the people's oblation, sometimes called the oblation of the church. But first, a review. Okay, so we made it this this and thus far in the liturgy. We're going to have a quick review of where we've been. You remember that the liturgy is typically divided into two portions, sometimes called the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the sacrament or something to that effect. As uh, the ancient church had a division in the service where all those that were catechumens or that were just inquirers or who were interested would come to the first portion where you'd hear scriptures read, you'd hear a sermon preached, you'd... Uh, you know, have, have different prayers of, uh, of, I don't know what you could say, this season. But then when the portion came to recite the creed and to begin the confession, absolution, all that, uh, the catechumens and such were, were let out, and it was just those who had been baptized into the Christian faith, into the body of Christ, who would continue. But for this first portion, the liturgy of the word, our service still follows that pattern. And we begin with the preparation and the calling for purity. The preparation takes part, I would say, in two different places. Number one, the clergy are making a preparation in that uh, vesting room. We also pray with the choir just afterwards. Sometimes if you come into church a little bit I won't say late because it's not technically late, but if you come in two or three minutes before the service starts and the doors open, you may hear the clergy reciting a prayer together back and forth. We're essentially praying what, what, not essentially, we are praying what's called the confidier in which we're confessing uh, our sins and we're, we're uh, acknowledging that we're about to 
stand at the altar of God, and it better be humbly. <laughs> so we try to start as humbly as possible. Uh, that prayer is recited uh, back and forth. If you, if you ever visit a Roman Catholic church, you'll see that the confidier in the modern liturgy has been worked right into the liturgy that everyone says. So some of those same words in a more modern translation are said by everyone, but they used to always be said by the clergy, and that's what we do. Uh, ending with a prayer, the Lord's Prayer. The very first page of the, of the Order for Holy Communion is the Lord's Prayer before the Collect for Purity. That Lord's Prayer can also be a sign for your own preparation. It's nice that we have a tradition where it's pretty quiet before the service starts. There's not a lot of talk about how Clemson did yesterday and uh, how the Gamecocks did and all that kind of stuff. When you enter those doors and the candles are lit and you sit down, the, the intention is for you to be quiet, for you to not only give yourself some space to pray, but get everybody around you a little bit of space to pray, collect yourself, and make preparation for what's about to happen. So uh, we use vesting prayers, the confidior, and the, the laity have more of an opportunity for silent recollection. And I do consider the organist playing a prelude to be silent because <laughs> we're still not chattering. Uh, it can actually uh, enhance your focus for that preparation time. As the service begins, uh, after the collect for purity, which some clergy call the scary prayer because we pray... Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. So whatever it is you were hiding from the person sitting next to you is not hidden in this room. God saw the whole thing. He knows all the things that you're wishing to do and hoping to do and all that. He knows all that. So if you're, yeah, rut row, that's good. So if you want to be uh, fully participating in this service, you should start by recognizing he saw all of that. He heard all of those voices in your head. He knows. Um, in some liturgies, we include an introit, uh, which is a, a prayer, a sort of an antiphonal prayer, sometimes done with the choir and the clergy, which includes uh, a verse apropos for the day. Um, we've done introits here in the past. We'll probably do them again in the future. We don't do them right now. Um, Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. Once a month here, we do the Decalogue. That was, that was introduced at the Reformation. And the Kyrie eleison, which is one of the most ancient prayers, uh, considered in the tradition, probably at the beginning of the tradition, of the monologistic prayer movement, which is one word, monologistic. If you've ever heard of the Jesus prayer, which the Orthodox do, with the uh, prayer ropes with the knots on it, Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you've ever heard of the rosary, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou. That's a part of uh, the tradition of monologistic prayer, which is not intention, the intention is not so that the Lord will hear it because you said it a bunch of times, but the Lord uh, essentially, when I, I would say, I wouldn't say the Lord, you having repeated it again and again, uh, are focused in your own prayer and some of the monkey mind of jumping all around is able to focus because of the simple repetition of a prayer. If you're ever completely exhausted and have no words left for the Lord in a circumstance that you're in, 
sometimes the best thing to say is, Lord, have mercy upon us. I can't think of anything else to say. I don't know what else I'm supposed to ask for. Christ, have mercy upon us. I don't know what to do. I've been waiting for an answer. I don't have any answer. Lord, have mercy upon us. That's monologistic prayer. We don't need a big, long speech. One word is good. (laughs) Uh, So the Kyrie eleison is one of the oldest of the monologistic uh, prayer tradition. We include it here at the beginning of our liturgy. Then we move on in our liturgy to the collect. And you really find in the collect and in the what we call the propers, uh, our observation of the calendar. And it's calendar with a K, which I resisted for many years, but okay. Calendar with, calendar with a K. K uh, representing uh, essentially sacred calendar versus secular calendar, which is the C. If you ever see the K, it generally means church. There's something re- uh, related to, to uh, sacred time. Um, these collects that you find in the Book of Common Prayer and in our tradition, many were taken from ancient sacramentaries from the 5th, 6th, and 7th generation, Leonine, Glazian, and Gregorian. Others were written uh, in the 16th century at the Reformation. Some have been written since then. But the prayers that we're praying, were not, I'm not winging it. This is a prayer the church has always prayed or has prayed for most of the church's history. And there's a connection there, not only with that collect, but with the scriptures that we read. In many instances, the scriptures we read have always been read on this day. And so we participate, we join in sort of a, a stream of, of ancient and historic tradition of the church. And um, yeah. The epistle, the gospel, are follow that same stream, and then the creed. Some people might like to say, uh, I don't understand why we come to a church where we always pray the same thing. Uh, why can't everything, uh, why can't we be more, what's the word, spontaneous? Why can't we just sort of wing it? You know what I mean? Just show up at church and just whatever comes to mind, go ahead and do that. Uh, I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis. I tried to find his quote, uh, but a really good quote is, the reason we pray the same thing every week is we believe the same thing every week. Uh, And we don't just pray whatever's off the top of our head. We pray what goes down to the very roots of the church's tradition. The scriptures are the same, as I like to say. The prayers are the same. The calendars is the same. And you change. So that when you come back to this portion of the calendar next year, as I've heard some people say uh, over the years, I know that the Christmas, particularly the Christmas tradition is always the same, but I am experiencing it in a way different way than I used to. I'm getting more of it. I'm catching more of it. It's, I understand this more now. That's why you don't keep changing the liturgy every year or even every century, (laughs) because we're hoping that you'll change as uh, the prayers form you rather than you forming the prayers of the church every week. Uh, There's a turn at the liturgy there to the liturgy of the sacrament. And depending on where you go in church history, the, the homily might have come before this switch or after 
There's a real switch is the creed. If you were a catechumen and you weren't real sure that you believed the creed yet, you should probably hear the sermon before you recite the creed. So in the ancient history of the church, you'd hear a sermon first, then they'd get rid of all the people that weren't so sure, and the baptized would remain, and we'd continue with the creed. Because if you're not sure that you believe, how are you going to join with everybody saying, I believe, or we believe, even, even uh, harder to say. Uh, so, but in our prayer book, the presumption is I won't be kicking everyone out halfway through the service. So we put the homily afterwards, the prayer book does. Homily, prayer for the whole state of Christ church, a very ancient tradition, even descending from the Jewish uh, synagogue. Uh, the homily and the creed, uh, yeah, I already told you that one. There is, following this, an invitation, confession, and absolution. You recognize how a catechumen might not be quite ready for this yet. Somebody visiting the church would say, wait a second. I'm going to confess what to who, and he's going to say what? You know, so that's why we're down to the baptized here. Uh, The invitation to confess. The confession of sin is both private, in a sense, personal, and corporate. I don't ask you to stand up in front of everyone and declare what it is that you're confessing today. We confess those sins together. Um, and the prayer book says if this is not, if this confession and absolution is not sufficient to quiet your conscience, that's not to say that you haven't received forgiveness. If your conscience is still not quieted, that you should come and talk to your minister or you should come and talk to someone in the clergy and unburden yourself to him. That uh, refers to private confession, as we see in the stained glass here. If you've uh, made your confession at the, in the corporate service, and, but it still is just a cacophony of condemning noise in your head, you should probably come talk to Father so-and-so, whoever that Father so-and-so is. Uh, the shift of focus after the absolution, you'll notice, goes upward, okay? Where the sursum corda literally is one of the oldest prayers in the church. Lift up your hearts. You're literally, at that point, after the absolution, lifting yourself up. Uh, lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. We're going to offer an imperfect offering. There's no way around it. But you've got to offer it anyway. <laughs> so uh, that Sursum Corda is the beginning of that offering of self, which we'll, which we'll complete today. Uh, a preface is said before the Sanctus, the preface um, meaning is very meet, right, and are bound in duty that we should at all times and all places give thanks unto thee. We're, we're prefacing the canon, but the there are some uh, prefaces that are appropriate to different sets of propers. That's why you find on page 77, proper prefaces. Christmas, Epiphany, Purification, Easter, Ascension, Whitsuntide. The missiles have many more uh, proper prefaces. And so sometimes you'll be in a, in a service and you'll hear a preface that you can't find in your prayer book. That's because we're using one from the missile. The prayer book sort of pared those down. The missile expands them back out again. You may hear a preface, uh, let's say, for Epiphany. Yeah, well, that's true. There is one right there. You know what I'm saying. There's some minor feast where, the, uh, where the, the preface isn't appearing in the prayer book, but it will appear. 
uh, in our liturgy sometimes. And then we move to the canon. The words of institution, those are Christ's words. This is my body. This is my blood. Uh, the oblation, which is wherefore, Lord and Heavenly Father, according to the institution of thy dearly beloved Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, we thy humble servants do celebrate and make here before thy divine majesty with these thy holy gifts, which we now offer unto thee. Okay, that's the oblation of that bread and that wine, that body and that blood, um, and followed in our liturgy by the epiclesis, same as paraclete, where the Holy Spirit is referred to as one who is called alongside. Clete is called, para is alongside. Paraclete is the Holy Spirit called alongside. Epiclesis is the Holy Spirit called down upon this bread, this wine, this body, this blood. Um, There is a divide between the East and the West over which portions of the liturgy are the essential elements of the consecration. The West says the words of institution. The East says the epiclesis. We put them both in there. So if you want to complain about something, it can't be that (laughs) because we got it right there. We had a long discussion of the real presence which is very simply exactly what it sounds like. What is the Anglican Church's position on uh, the, the, the sacrament? Christ says he is present. This is my body. This is my blood. He didn't refer to Aristotle. He didn't refer to substance and accident and transubstantiation. That could be true, but he didn't say that. He just said, This is my body. So we interpret it to be real. He is really present in this body, in this blood, in this bread, and in this uh, wine that have been consecrated. So that's that's bringing us up to where we are today, which is something I'm calling the oblation continued. Before we go on for the next about 20 minutes, uh, any questions or thoughts about our (coughs) review thus far? That took us 11 sessions to get to that spot, and so I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff in my review. But any lingering questions or things bugging you or bothering you? Nope. All right. We continue then. We're on page 81, the final paragraph of the canon. The oblation is continued. Okay, so at this point, recall, oblation is roughly uh, interpreted as offering. Recall that at this point we have offered the bread, grain, which was provided by God and worked by hands into bread. We don't offer grain. We offer bread. Our labor has gone into this. Part of us is in this bread. Okay? We offer wine. The grapes are provided by God, worked by human hands into wine. You realize we don't offer grapes. But we offer a product that has been required to be used uh, to be processed by our own labor. So there's labor involved in this bread and in this wine. We offer money uh, at our offering. The opportunity is provided by God to labor, and that is the produce of our hands. We typically, at the end of our labor, No matter where you work these days, you probably get a check. I doubt that they give you a bottle of wine or a loaf of bread. (laughs) If you do, I want to find out where you work because that's interesting. 
Anyway, but you could imagine that if your labor produced bread, literal bread, to come to church and, and present bread would be absolutely appropriate. Because this is what I worked and this is the best that I have, the best loaf of bread. Uh, not on, not on, unrelated to the manner in which spotless lambs were offered. Um, those spotless lambs offered by a shepherding community was the most valuable one. Um, why the priests are chastised in the book of Malachi for offering their sick and their lame, the worst sheep that were the least, you know, the least valuable. I think I'll just offer this one. I'm the priest. No one will know. You know, they get uh, beat up for that one. We've also offered adoration. We've offered confession. We've offered supplication, which is prayers for other people. And now as the oblation continues, we will explicitly offer ourselves. Okay? Knowing full well, with scriptural references and precedent to boot, that our offerings cannot suffice. One might say, well, then why should you offer anything at all? If these things are true, we find in Psalm 49, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their soul is precious. It's right there in Psalm 49. There's nothing you're going to offer of your goods that are going to save the person next to you. In Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. When we offer that to the Lord, we offer filthy rags, fading leaves, uh, and iniquities that are as light as chaff and taken away. It's not so valuable (laughs) when you think of it that way. St. Paul says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you had considered yourself and all that you had produced, that very special loaf of bread and bottle of wine to be truly valuable, in the heavenly realms valuable, well, then maybe you would pretend that you had made a sufficient sacrifice. But the scriptures are replete with references to the notion that you have nothing to sacrifice to God. You give him yourself, and even that's not enough. However, uh, Hebrews 13 gives us some hope. We have an altar whereof, and speaking of the altar in Jerusalem, or at the temple, Whereof they have no right to eat, which reserve, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Now there's a worthy sacrifice. Let us go therefore forth unto him without the camp, outside, Bearing his reproach, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. And here's the essence of what is going on in our own liturgy, and especially this last paragraph of the canon. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. By him, we're going to make 
an offering. Our own offering is completely insufficient, and we even acknowledge it in our prayer. But uh, by him, it might be considered uh, worthy. So we say, And we earnestly desire thy fatherly goodness, mercifully to accept this our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, most humbly beseeching thee to grant that by the merits and death of thy Son, Jesus Christ, and through faith in his blood, we and all thy whole church may obtain remission of our sins and all other benefits of his passion. You notice that by our own sacrifice, we're not uh, presuming to obtain remission of our sins. But yet, nevertheless, we are making an offering. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. So he's not asking that you uh, make of yourself an immolation and, and there is no bloody sacrifice. There is no blood on the altar. The beasts and all of that which we're representing are all done. We don't slay any animals any longer because there's been one full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice and it's in Christ. Now that you are in Christ... I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God. It's a reasonable service. Why so reasonable about that? Because if you're in Christ, and you're the body of Christ, and he's the head, why wouldn't you do what he did? Okay, I know, they made a, a, a wristband. What would Jesus do? WWJD, and it became a marketing thing. And it was came kind of tacky after a while. And then you want to say, oh, I'm so sick of those wristbands. The question is still pretty good. And you could almost say, what DJD, what did Jesus do? Is <laughs> a better question. What did Jesus do? He offered himself a sacrifice. What do you think he might ask of you? Probably the same. And so we do, recognizing it's insufficient in itself, but, and here we offer and present unto the O Lord ourselves, our souls, and our bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee. Where did we get that? Romans chapter 12. That's where you got that. People say, uh, I don't need a prayer book. I've got the Bible. Okay. <laughs> Most of our prayer book, I'd say about 80% of the prayer book is the Bible. And our liturgy is really the Bible turned into prayers for our own corporate use. Um, Prayers that we can say together like this from Romans chapter 12. Humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive. Now where would we take that from? That would be from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 with uh, St. Paul's uh, warning that you should not receive unworthily we're doing our very best to receive worthily um, they worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy son Jesus Christ be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction or blessing and made one body with him 
that he may dwell in us and we in him. If we're one body with him and he dwells in us and we in him, we should not only take his name, Christian, but we should do the things that he does. We should say the things that he would say. We should be like him. And so in this liturgy, we're doing our very best. Best you can do in an hour and a half with a kneeler and a congregation of people and an organ. Uh, It's the best you can do. (laughs) Vestments, we dress it up the best we possibly can. Uh, We've got the best that we can really afford in that room. But that body and blood of of the Son, Jesus Christ is really there for us to be nurtured that he may dwell in us and we in him. Um, And so we continue to the end of that prayer and we'll have a little bit of time. And although we are unworthy, here's our acknowledgement. Although we are unworthy through our manifold sins to offer unto thee any sacrifice, yet we beseech thee to accept this, our bounden duty and service, not weighing our merits, that's a good distinction, not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses through Jesus Christ our Lord. Of course, you're catching the difference. If you are going to stand next to the Lord and have him weigh your merits, boy, are you in trouble. <laughs> okay. It's not even a, there's not even a scale for that in, in our uh, Ordination or canonical exams, we have a few different questions that, that are, I guess you could say, philosophical. We say, are these two things different in degree or kind? And you know what I mean by that? So a really, really big pumpkin is bigger than a tiny, tiny, tiny pumpkin by degree, right? But in kind, they're the same thing. They're both pumpkins, right? So by degree, we could compare ourselves to one another, right? But when we compare ourselves to the Son of God, he shares our nature, but there's a difference in kind. Uh, This is the shepherd to the sheep. This is the creator to the creature. There's a difference there that if we were to say, hey, why don't you weigh our merits? Uh, That's not as good as an idea an idea as pardoning our offenses. Now that would be, that would get us a lot closer. Actually, if he pardoned our offenses, then perhaps we would be uh, much closer to what he had created us to be in the first place, a creature to be in full union and communion with him. And with whom, uh, in the unity of the Holy Ghost, all honor and glory be unto thee, O Father Almighty, world without end. Uh, We dwell in him, He dwells in us. He doesn't weigh our merits, which would be an embarrassment. He pardons our offenses, which would be just great. Um, And we're really heading to the pinnacle of this entire service. The reason you woke up this morning, the reason you put on a suit and a dress, and the reason you fixed yourself up, uh, is that in a few moments, if you haven't already at the early service, in a few moments, we will participate in all these prayers, this consecration, This consecration will happen and will not only watch it, we'll participate in it. And he will give us of himself and we will receive of him. And he will receive our offering and he will return it to us sanctified 
and we can go depart in peace to love and serve the Lord. That's why you came to church on Sunday. I know we have coffee, and I know there's donuts and cookies and programs, and there's this beautiful Christmas tree, and you really like, I don't know, what else, the carpet? (laughs) I really like the carpet, it's good. Uh, I like the stained glass window, the lighting is good. Sometimes there's a recital, which is a wonderful thing. We have that today. But that's not the reason you came to church. This is the reason that uh, your offering would be acceptable to God because it's united with Christ. And you're able to share in a foretaste of heaven, which is a banquet, really. So our offering and his... Here's a a couple paragraphs from a commentator named Massey Shepard, who for the most, most of his theological, theological career was very orthodox, and at the end he went sideways. But the story is not about him. It's about what he said. He said, But the specific emphasis upon the entire self-giving of the church in response to our Lord's perfect offering of himself on our behalf is a distinctive aspect of the Anglican liturgy. And there it is in that paragraph. We not only memorialize Christ's oblation, we unite our offering of ourselves to his offering. And finally, thus, in a wondrous and indescribable way, the Eucharist unites the memorial of our Lord's sacrifice in his incarnate body. And so we recall that actual sacrifice on the cross where he gave up the ghost also the representation or representation of that sacrifice in his sacramental body, as his body and blood are now on the altar in a glorified state, but also the continual offering of his sacrifice in his mystical body, which is the church, our own offering, which is separate only in a limited sense, because if he's in us and we're in him, then our offering is his offering, and his offering is our offering, All of these things are joined together in the Eucharist, which I understand is far more than you can possibly contemplate in an hour and a half, let alone your whole life. So if you go through the liturgy and not all of these bells are ringing at the same time in your mind, perhaps one will this week, and then next week another one. Or maybe, uh, like we were saying earlier on today, The liturgy is the same. The sacraments are the same. The Lord is the same. The calendar is the same. You change. That uh, rich banquet that you're coming to of liturgy and of sacrament can feed you for the rest of your life and for eternity. We're hoping at least for this week until you return next week. So you can depart in peace to love and serve the Lord with the understanding that you'll return next week or perhaps for a midweek service. Um, any comments or questions about this uh, people's oblation, our review and the oblation of the church here at the end of the canon before next week we turn to the Lord's Prayer? Any ideas or thoughts? Please. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that goes all the way 
Yeah. Um, they were offering two different things. Right. It's, it, it's one that you have to, um, what would the word be? Since the, the book of Genesis isn't explicit about what was wrong with Cain's offering, you're left to sort of guess at what, Cain's off, what was wrong with Cain's offering. That could be, yeah. And also, the, the idea, though, is that something about this offering was insufficient. Um, and since the, the Levitical law had not even come close to being written yet, that he, he didn't have a law to follow. There was just simply, essentially, the heart. Something about Abel's offering was utterly sincere. And something about Cain's offering was half. So we, we think about, when, this, this is as the Old Testament begins, as the New Testament begins, as the church begins, in the book of Acts, you find the same thing. Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, the others have given everything, and Ananias and Sapphira said they gave everything, but they didn't. There's sort of a, a recapitulation or a, a re-happening again of an insufficient offering. A lie. Now, what was the, exactly the lie of Cain? I, don't, I can't really say it. I could guess. Um, but the only thing we have to really understand is that something was insufficient there. The Lord actually gave, if you read carefully in the book of Genesis, Cain is not condemned immediately. Uh, the Lord gives Cain an opportunity to make an appropriate offering. He even says, if you offer, essentially, as your brother Abel did, your offering will be accepted. He went out and killed his brother instead. So that was, the, that was his response. Oh, yeah. It's, it's true. If the, Lord, if the Lord says to you, uh, if your offering was more like something, something, you know, somebody else's, you can take deep offense at it or you can realize maybe that's a good piece of advice. Um, why can't you be more like your brother? Ho, ho, ho. <laughs> I never had a brother, so I don't know what that would sound like, but I could sure that wouldn't sit well. And yeah, like you're saying, fighting words. But nevertheless, um, Ananias and Sapphira received a question. Every, like uh, they didn't realize that other people knew their offering had been a lie. And they were asked a question and they lied again. So the offering itself was a lie. And then when asked about it, they had a chance to be honest and they lied again. So, uh, you know, if you were to transpire transplant that Old Testament reference from the book of Genesis and the New Testament reference from the book of Acts right into our own liturgical service, it should put a little bit of the fear of God in you that when we approach a God who already knows all of our thoughts and our desires and uh, you know, unto whom no secrets are hid, Perhaps when we offer ourselves, when we say the words, our, we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and our bodies. We should do our very best to be earnest about that. <laughs> um, our souls and our bodies to be a reasonable, holy and living sacrifice unto thee. 
humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy Son, Jesus Christ, as opposed to what St. Paul says, unworthily, in which you will receive condemnation, as St. Paul says. We're doing our very best to give everyone a full opportunity to offer themselves worthily, as best as you can. Uh, One instinct is to say, how will I ever know if I'm offering uh, myself, my soul, my body worthily? I might as well just not receive. That was the answer of the church for many uh, years and for many people, was I just won't receive communion because it's too hard. On the other hand, uh, you're told you must receive Jesus says you must, otherwise you have no life in you. So talk about a straight and narrow way. It's right there in the middle. You must receive, and you must receive worthily. Whew, that's a straight and narrow way. So coming to church is real easy on the one hand. On the other hand, it's a straight and narrow path right down the center. So we're doing everything we can uh, to give opportunity And if you feel that you've received unworthily, well, that will be the next thing for you to confess. (laughs) Your next confession will be, Lord, have mercy upon me for my unworthiness. I don't know what I'm doing, but I think I know what I'm doing today. Um, Have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Um, Any other uh, questions or thoughts before we finish with the canon? Next week we're on again with the Lord's Prayer, and hopefully also the Prayer of Humble Access, which is one of the greatest prayers uh, of the liturgy outside of the New Testament, I think. The end. Thank you.